All right. And welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a podcast posted at www.pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcaster.ca. This is episode number 113. You can also listen or subscribe by searching for Pints and Politics on iTunes and on Stitcher. On Pints and Politics, we explore all things political with a focus on life in Peterborough, Ontario, and Canada. This episode was recorded February 27th, 2022. Today, our focus will be on the pro-vax, anti-vax divide across the country. The protest convoys, the recent blockades, the occupation of Ottawa, and the Emergencies Act, and the implications of these events. Joining me for this online discussion are Peterborough City Councillor Stephen Wright, paralegal professional photographer and comedian Jill Tilley, artist and arts advocate Annie Yeager, and LGBTQ I plus activist and director of development for Rainbow Railroad, Dane Bland. All right. Thank you, everyone, for making the time to uh, join in. Now, before we get into the granular detail of the pro-vax, anti-vax issue, the convoys, the blockades, the protests in Ottawa and elsewhere, including Peterborough's own slow rolls on Saturday that we had another one, this, and the Emergencies Act, could we all take a brief flight up to the 10,000 meter level to look down on our community and this country? What do you see in terms of impacts of these last four weeks? If you see rifts and divisions, what is causing these injuries to our social fabric? And what might be the solutions? How might the healing start? Or are we not ready for that sort of language yet? I tried to pose that question in a commentary in last Friday's Examiner and received some a surprising amount of uh, criticism for doing so. So my first question, what are you seeing about these rifts? Are they real? Are they temporary? Are they serious? What do we think? Stephen here. You know, these, these rifts are very real. They're real within families uh, that are trying to find a way to navigate the discussions about the vaccination process or the unvaccination of family members. And, you know, what you're seeing as far as a slow roll and, and the community being so vocal is, you know, an in-your-face demonstration as to the level of dissension that exists between these two groups and how aggressive one group is getting over the other. So they're unwilling to have the conversations about why they disagree uh, with the need to be vaccinated or not vaccinated. Dane, Dane here, Bill. I agree with Stephen. I think the rift is real, but I also think it's overplayed. To be completely oh. candid with you, just in terms of numbers, I should mm-hmm. say, you know, the vaccination rate in Canada is what approaching 90 plus percent for, for mm-hmm. folks who have received two doses of their vaccine or more. And so I think that what's happening, it's the classic, you know, kids, kid, one kid acting out, forcing every other kid to stay home for recess. Um, that kid right. and their impact is overblown because the one is ruining it for the entire class. At the same time, that one is incredibly vocal, they're incredibly present, and I think that, you know, we cannot downplay the, the, the division that this is causing, as Stephen said, um, really, really eloquently within families, you know, within 
our homes. I think we can all sort of point to a member of our family or a close friend that we may disagree with on this issue. I, I don't think we can downplay that. But I also think the thing that is being downplayed is that the vast majority of Canadians are silent on the issue, but have followed the rules. And it's the ones who have not followed the rules that have decided to be extremely vocal and are kind of ruining it a little bit for the rest of us. The other thing that particularly concerns me, and, you know, I don't want to be like a one-trick pony, but throughout the conversation, I, I want to also be sure that we're, we're, we're focusing on this pro-vax versus anti-vax moment you know, all of all kinds of other social important, critically important social causes are being pinned on this. And this is sort of being a rider for really a, a sort of a bevy of these kind of populist social talking points like anti-immigration right. sentiments, xenophobia, racism, trans misogyny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yes, yes, yes. are all kind of being pinned on this thing. And it's kind of an excuse to say the ugly part out loud. So that's yeah. kind of, that's what's really, that's what's really been irking me, I think, about the whole thing. Um, but I, I do, I really want to, I think the, the, the people that deserve the biggest shout out, perhaps, are the ones who are the quietest. And those are the people who rolled up their sleeves, got their vaccine, didn't make a big deal about it, did their duty, and then went about their days. Annie, go ahead. Um, I, th- I agree with a lot of what uh, both both uh, Stephen and Dane have said. And I, but I also think it's been highly fueled by um, outside forces. And I, I don't think it's so much a rift in our society as it is, um, like Dane said, it's an umbrella for just about any grievance that is, has, that the pandemic has kind of brought into focus. And I think a few, you know, a couple of, the one good thing about it is that a couple of years ago or up until Ottawa, um, hap- occupation happened, um, most people I know would kind of, were going, oh, you know, that could never happen here. It only happens in the United States and we're, we're above yes, all yes. that and stuff. So the I think it's at, least, at least it's brought that piece of it into focus that actually it can happen here and that what's happening in the United States in terms of sort of what I would call regressive, regressive movements and racism and, and women's rights and all kinds of ugly, ugly stuff is uh, also bleeding up into this area. It's being pushed into this area, largely through social media. And that's a very powerful, powerful kind of toxic pipeline up into, into our community that's caught, that's fueling all of, a lot of this, this problem. Yeah. And of course there's no border on social media. Right. Yeah. The blockades at the border have been cleared after the huge uh, police intervention in Ottawa uh, last weekend, the 18th to the 20th. That city is returning to sort of a normal, at least on the surface. So therefore, are are we done? Is the anti-vax convoy movement finished or are we merely at the end of the beginning? Thanks for that. I I actually uh, was up in Ottawa uh, one day uh, in the midst of this uh, uh, occupation, really what it was. And oh. it's amazing. So it was before uh, uh, the uh, Emergency Measures Act was even discussed and brought into play. And to see, you know, what was happening downtown Ottawa, it was disparaging for all legitimate protests that have ever happened. The Black Lives Rally, the when you think to the 60s, the lunch counter sit-ins, uh, right. all of those legitimate protests. There were a number of people uh, downtown Ottawa that were having a pig roast one day I drove past and there was, you know, a pig roast happening right in the middle of Wellington. And then you think, well, you know, 
there are people that join the protest, contribute to the protest because they had legitimate questions that, you know, we will have to talk about post-COVID. We will have to talk about government measures, government measures that took place during COVID. Those are legitimate conversations that we'll have to have, the responses, the impact on businesses. But what was happening with the occupation in Ottawa stepped on every single one of any legitimate protest that has ever happened in my lifetime or even before I was born. And the one case we were not talking about is is, uh, Peter Slowly and how he became a scapegoat for inaction on the police part. And then when you look at the police presence post uh, Peter Slowly resigning, if yep. we ever had that kind of resource amassed anywhere else in this country to deal with some of our other serious issues, we, we'd address homelessness. It'd be done. You know, the opioid crisis, it'd be done. So yep. it, it was it was very disparaging to see what happened. The, the feelings of uh, we've come back to a relatively reasonable state in Ottawa won't happen for a while. So in, in, in regards to the question of whether or not it's over, it's not. Um, and it's it's not like this is even the beginning they planned a convoy from Alberta to Ottawa back in 2019 before the pandemic to argue about oil and gas because they wanted more um, them to use more oil and gas and, and because there were environmental sanctions coming down. So this isn't the first time this has been planned. It's not the last time, and it's certainly not the last time the right is going to rally a group of people who feel marginalized, whether true or not, to their overall cause because it's easy for people to rally around something that feels so big and then ignore all the the small things that are happening that are actually you know chipping away at their rights now i have a question about uh, policing now there's been a lot of coverage about uh, shortcomings of policing in ottawa and elsewhere some have commented online that this was policing for straight middle class predominantly right right wing white folks who don't like justin trudeau and who carry cell phones uh, now, is that a fair characterization? Uh, I mean, as a Montrealer, uh, I grew up there, uh, I've seen a far more vigorous style of policing used to clear demonstrators from the street. Indigenous elders and student environmentalists protecting old-growth forests out in Ferry Creek, uh, B.C., were, um, you know, they got far more muscular style of policing from the RCMP this past summer and fall. And others have said that if the protesters had been BIPOC or another marginalized group, the police would have acted far sooner and with much more force. Still, uh, you know, I feel caught in a dilemma because people of my demographic and political persuasion have been criticizing police brutality in Canada for years. But I have to describe the policing, at least I saw on Twitter from Ottawa last weekend, the 18th to 20th, uh, as, for the most part, more or less restrained and proportional. A welcome change. So uh, my question is, have the police learned from past experiences, such as the, the G20 debacle in Toronto in uh, 2010, wherein they were successfully sued for millions. Have they learned that restrained is better than brutal? Yeah, I think I was I was quite confused by the police response, and I had I really questioned. Okay, what what was going on there? Did they was there a chance that um, there was a mutiny within the police force, and that they would not um, the police would not f- fulfill Stoli's uh, request if he asked them to go in and break up the the uh, convoy? Or 
Was was there intelligence that there was a bigger threat of it in in within the convoy, like bombs or guns or something that he knew that he wasn't sharing with us? So there was a lot of confusion around that. But I think that you know we we've seen them use the you know Toronto last summer just taking out homeless people out of the park. I mean, who had no other place to go? It was vicious. It was horrible. And Indigenous people out West, I mean, the police, I don't think the police have learned anything. I think it was simply, there was a kind of camaraderie there, actually. And, and maybe a lot of the police were on the side of the, of the convoy. I mean, there were certainly some, a, a few, a couple of them that got, I think, dismissed as a result of their public um, proclaiming of, of, of support for the convoy. So um, that raises a huge question for all of us, I think, though, are, you know, what is the nature of our police force? Are are they are they going to actually enforce our laws, or are they going to act according to their personal uh, preferences? That's that's a hard one to answer. And how prevalent is right wing supremacy in the police force and maybe even the military? That's that's another thing that scares scares me a lot. I can tell you for free, Bill Dane here, I can tell you for free, uh, I don't remember uh, police officers taking selfies with the Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't remember police officers taking selfies with the Indigenous Pipeline protesters in Wet'suwet'en um, or when they were blockading railways. I do certainly remember the Conservative Party of Canada telling uh, us then that blockades were illegal. I don't recall that having just happened recently. And so, look, the I think there is a clear double standard here. It did take 22 days for the capital of our country to be free from a tyrannical occupation. These people were pig roasting in the streets. They were beating the staff. Uh, you know, uh, Randy Boissonneau reported one of his, his staff um, got assaulted in their constituency office. This was a, these people were anti-democracy activists and advocates and protesters. They're not pro-freedom. Let's be real. And so, of course, of course, there's a clear double, double standard. There needs to be a reckoning within how we do police work in our country. That's a reckoning that's been a long time coming. The conversation's been paused. Like, it feels like that conversation got paused. Like, what happened in 2020 when we were all talking about how policing needed to change? Um, that's th That conversation has largely been put on pause. And I think it's really critically important that we pick it back up for a number of different reasons. Number one, you know, the response I watched, as you sort of said, Bill, like I watched the CBC when they actually did finally move people out and it was effective and largely nonviolent and, and relatively safe. Okay, fine. But where was that response for the first 22 days of the occupation? Where was that response when we knew they literally were driving across the country going, we're going to camp out in Ottawa, and everyone just kind of went, okay, and let the trucks drive in and drive into the downtown and let them park there. I also, I also think we have a lot to learn from how maybe more evolved police forces, you know, who are used to dealing with this kind of mass sort of protest moments you know, the Toronto police force dealt with it very completely differently than the Ottawa police force did, largely effectually. Anytime that the people were going to be entrenched, I was following it along live. Anytime these people went to be entrenched, the Toronto police force said, no, you can't park here. On you go. This is the next intersection. And they just got so frustrated that they left. And so we had a, we had an option to do it better. Um, and we didn't. And at the same time, as, as Annie said, you know, there there needs to be a reckoning here with how we do policing in, in, in our country and around the world. 
Yeah, just just one uh, writer on what you're saying, Dane, and this could be a, a separate vein to mine. There were among the protesters also people who were there for, although we might not agree with their understanding of the science, were there for fairly sane reasons. They weren't all there as racist, white supremacists uh, to turn over the government. They were there because in some cases had lost jobs because of vaccine mandates. Um, and I know I've, I have heard, uh, you know, some people who were there, uh, who said, you know, we didn't see Nazi flags. We didn't see Confederate flags. We didn't, uh, you know, they were happy people. There were the bouncy castles. There were people with kids. It wasn't all, how should we say, more radical elements. Anyway, pardon my intervention. Let me, There's... let me just say something about that, Bill. Like, if, oh, shoot. If... Go ahead. You know, you say there are people who said, oh, we're just here. We're not white supremacists. I mean, you say you didn't see a Nazi flag. It was all over the news. And as far as I'm oh, concerned, no. once I, you're I aware, clarify, that wasn't me. I, I know. No, people no, I know were, that. Yeah. But there were people who were there who were like, I didn't see a Nazi flag. And I have to tell you that that kind of mentality of I didn't see it. So I'm not part of it is is literally how Nazism was able to exist in the first place. Uh-huh. And it was all over the news. Everyone knew about it. And the second you knew about it, if you stuck around, you're complicit in it. Bill, Stephen here. I have to sure. agree with Jill because uh, it would have been hard even for uh, our own MP because I know she was out on the streets several times and she video recorded the conversations that were happening. And, you know, all you have to do is go back and look at some of the recordings that were done. Uh, you know, there was that element you listen to uh, the organizer, and we won't even bother saying his name, but you, you look at some of the previous recordings that he's put out there uh, talking about these vaccine mandates as a measure to eliminate the white race. And you see, you know, so that those separated groups that said, well, this is, uh, and, you know, to go back to the whole Peter Slowly issue when it comes to policing, here's one of the, what I would think one of the smartest police chiefs in the country, a true activist, Somebody who grew up uh, at a time where a lot of these protests were dealing with race, you know, mm-hmm. and, and here's a fellow that, you know, we all thought at one point should have been the police chief of Toronto, uh, now the police chief in Ottawa. And you're saying, well, how do you police pro uh, pre the emergency measures conversation? How do you police these segmented groups? And say, here are some that are legitimately protesting, and here are some that are so far out in the left field that you can't take them seriously. They were there to uh, talk about uh, destabilizing the government, having conversations with the governor general to install a new government. Yeah. You know, the ridiculousness of those things. But yet, you know, the, it, was, it was shoveled off again onto slowly and says, well, you didn't do your job. There was a right. failure of federal intelligence this convoy was being planned, you know, months in advance of all of these mandates. And even when you were hearing premiers and federal government members saying, well, we got to revisit the mandates themselves and thinking, you know, where if we were at an endemic, or is it time to start rolling back some of those mandates? A conversation had already started. There was no need for that occupation of Ottawa. I'll leave you there for now. Well, one question that dances in the background here is, uh, and we've already touched on it, let's make it, ask it explicitly, um, what do these convoys and the blockades represent? I mean, 
who do they really represent? Were the truckers, uh, using air quotes, used as pawns by more sinister political forces? Uh, for example, was the issue of vaccine mandates really the chief motivating factor behind all of the protesters? I, I note in parentheses that uh, Ezra Levant has been a guest of Tucker Carlson's on Fox News and several times, you know, American right, right-wing media. So what is going on in that aspect? Bill, I just want to say it was such a good idea for the right-wing to mobilize a group of truckers to protest because it is such a visual thing. You know, you look at these pictures and it's like trucks all the way to the horizon. What yes. a what a huge what a huge movement this is. All of Canada must be involved. And then you like count the trucks and there's like fifteen trucks. And you're like, okay. <laughs> so like it's taking up two city blocks, but it's literally enough people to fill the front half of a bus. But they they make so much noise, they're so loud, they're paralyzing the city. And so they're able to take this small fringe group, which is really what the right wing loves to do in America and here nowadays, is they take this small fringe group that really doesn't represent even the majority of the people on the right, and they make them super loud and super ridiculous, and they change the whole conversation, and they make they just make it impossible to have an argument with them because, frankly, they are the stupidest people in the world. You know, when they talk about things like, we're going to present this to the governor general, and they're going to have to uninstall the government. It's like... You heard people at the trucker convoy being like, what about my First Amendment rights? This is Canada, baby. (laughs) And so, honey, no. That's the right for Manitoba to be a province. And it's just this deep, deep ignorance that they are utilizing. They're using these people as basically like human fodder in a way to get what they want, which is, you know, less mandates, less regulation, all these things so that they can get richer and richer and richer and suppress more and more people of color and indigenous folks to line their pockets. And they're just being like, it's about freedom, baby. And it's, it's not, it's about power and control and money. Okay. Yeah. I mean, why didn't, if it was about mandates, why didn't they go after Doug Ford since Doug Ford was the one that really put most of the mandates in place? I mean, that they didn't make a peep towards him. So that, that doesn't ring true to me at all. And I also think, you know, the the presence of all the presence of American flags and the don't tread on me flags and the 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 lingo of of American government governance, like talking about their First Amendment rights and and all this stuff. They were obviously influenced. I mean, I don't see how you could not be see that they were influenced by American right wing players and I, I listened in on some of the trucker chats on that were streamed by the Ram Ranch Resistance. It was uh, really eye-opening at the level of ignorance that was there. Uh, they they were totally disorganized. They really didn't have much of a grasp of what the financials were going to be or anything. And yet, there was like fifty percent of the give get, give send go money came from American donors. Oh, it was right, 50, right. I think 56 percent. So if that doesn't tell you that there's a really heavy duty American influence going on here, I, I don't it just seems totally clear to me that it's not really just uh, a bunch of truckers who want to be able to go into the United States without getting a vaccine. You know, there's there's this dark 
kind of insidious thing that's happening on, on social media. I mean, you go yes. back to, there was a documentary that was on Netflix about social media, about the evils and the perils of social media and Facebook, et cetera, uh, that came out, I believe, I think it was in, in, during the pandemic that talked about how people, like the ways in which social media can be used to radicalize people. There is literally a playbook on how to do it. I mean, you know, the, an extreme example being, this is how terrorists are recruited nowadays. You know, ISIS uses Facebook and Twitter to recruit terrorists. So it's not a stretch to imagine that it's possible for extreme right-wing nationalists to utilize social media to, uh, to radicalize folks. Also, I, I really don't think we can downplay and, and this kind of speaks to some, some broader stuff that's going on in the world at the time in which we're recording this, but we can't downplay the the impact of foreign, like genuine foreign influence, not even American influence, but foreign influence on social media messaging. We are yes, we are weakening as a as as a like the concept of democracy is weakening. It's being eaten from the inside out through some really well placed memes. Like, isn't that terrifying? Like, it really is mm-hmm. quite scary. And I mean, this didn't look like a traditional protest movement. Protesters always have a manifesto or a series of demands. There wasn't. Like, you could walk up to any of these these folks on the street and go, why are you here? You know, what are you actually protesting against? And often the last thing out of their mouths was, well, vaccines. It was about freedom. It was about, you know, F. Trudeau flags. It was about overthrowing the government. It was not about, I have genuine concerns about the government telling me what to do with my personal health, which while I disagree, would have been a lot more of a legitimate um, yeah. thing to, to have quarrel with. That's not what this was about. That's not what they were saying on the ground. You look at MP Ferrari's videos. None of the people were talking about that unless she directly asked them about it. That's not what they were saying. And so I, I really do think we need to be concerned that, there were people who are so willing to disrupt their own lives. They're going to drive across the country and spend months in jail for a cause they can't even quite clearly articulate themselves. Like these are Canadian citizens. These are real human beings that are being radicalized inside of our country through the internet. That's really terrifying. I think yes. one interesting point is, and, and I've been asked this by you before, Bill, as an American, people will say like, how did January 6th happen? How did all this stuff happen? And I always say, We've, we have been fed on revolution and independence our whole lives. You know, the whole core of being American is saying, you know, you, you taxed us without representation. We revolted. Now we're our own country and we're number one. And which is why for me, when this happened, I was pretty surprised because I know there's been a lot of that creeping into Canada, but I was actually pretty surprised that Canadians would essentially take that same U.S. rhetoric and, and unleash it the same way. That's, that's, not particularly something that Americans have done. You, we've seen revolution in Canada before. You know, we've seen oppressed peoples. We've seen FLQ and like Ferry Creek and those things, people fighting for their rights. But they're so mercilessly crushed by the government that not only was this surprising, but like you said, the fact that it was able to happen and lasted so long, I think is the thing that has really shocked Canadians and, and myself as someone who's, you know, come from the other perspective. Fair enough. Bill, didn't touch on another very important point there, and I, I believe you have it in one of your questions, the impact of social media to spread yes. disinformation. And it, it, it was significant because most of these slow roll protests, the convoy in Ottawa, you know, when you look at how the organizing starts, it starts on social media to the point where legitimate media 
the, the, your main media cores are now putting out this door with taglines to, to get that clickbait. And it's feeding more and more into this radicalized view of, of, of attracting people. It's, it, it's pretty much like, uh, you know, was said, this is how terrorist organizations recruit. You know, these truckers were used for uh, a cause that had nothing to do with the mandates uh, that were in you know, governments were successively saying, listen, we're going to start rolling these mandates back. That conversation will already happen. So these truckers were used to push a different agenda. Oh, sorry. The other problem with the social media is that you are you you've taught them essentially <laughs> that they can't trust mainstream media. And so they're going to believe things that obviously disprovable, blatantly false on social media, but you can't argue with them about it. You know, my, as Bill knows, my father's an insane person. And he, he called me the other night, middle, like late at night and was like, do you have a minute? And I was like, oh, someone's dead. But he told, he just wanted to tell me that I should take all the money out of my bank account and hide it in my mattress. Because if Justin Trudeau didn't like the things I was saying on social media, he would drain my bank account. And when I was like, "Mm." I don't think that's true. Like he was like, no, it's true. I saw it on X X 22 report, but there's no arguing back. And that's the other yeah. way they're radicalized. They're put into something that where you can't fact check anything. They say it's all insane. And if you push back in any way, they're like, well, if you're like, well, here's a litany of facts. They're like, ah, oh, that's all, that's all fake. Those are all false flags. And so you're like, well, you can't, I can't even educate you to not believe this. Yeah. And it, just in parentheses, as we move through this, I, I, I must observe that uh, I at least was happily surprised that uh, once we got through the February 18th, 20th weekend, the, the three weeks of the uh, Ottawa occupation, the blockades out west and on the uh, bridge at Windsor, yeah, the frontier bridge, that um, there was no loss of life. Like this was a pressure cooker. And, uh, you know, Solly, uh, his force, we didn't have that. And I've heard the conjecture, what would this have turned out like had it happened in another geography? A bit of a sobering thought. Next question I want to move on to. Now, as we look forward into the spring and eventually the summer, although it must seem bizarre thought today, and uh, what do we foresee happening? I mean, the siege of uh, Ottawa took place during the harshest weather a Canadian winter can offer. I mean, there's lots of snow, short daylight, high winds, and temperatures down to minus 30 Celsius. And still, there are crowds up to 13,000 demonstrating for hours outside. Uh, so what can we look forward to when the weather warms up and it becomes uh, a lot more comfortable to spend long hours outdoors? Right. Um, I think it's going to keep going. I think... Uh... I, I don't think we've seen the last of this. I think there's like cells of, of, you know, radicalized people that are going, are just angry as hell. And they think that, I mean, even if, even after the mandates are lifted, they, that does, I mean, they're, most of them are going to be lifted in a lot of areas by March 1st. So, you know, what are they, what are they upset about now? Um, are they, it, will they only be happy if, if Trudeau steps down? Somehow, I don't think that's really going to satisfy them. I think they really do want a different government in there. And I mean, I was listening to, uh, watching a, a Twitch stream last night, and there was a they were feeding a, a there was a trucker a, a group of truckers that were camped outside of Arnprior, and there were camps all around the, the outskirts of of Ottawa that were 
full of supplies, food, and who knows, God knows what. So none of those things have really been broken up yet. So I think we're in for a long haul of dissension. And as long as, and Trump's out there just, you know, ramping up the rhetoric and campaigning for his next go at it. So I, I don't think it's over by any stretch. Bill, I would have to agree with Anne that as the warmer weather uh, presents itself, that, you know, we will see, God forbid, there is another COVID variant out there uh, that will cause uh, policymakers to have to rethink uh, the importance of our healthcare system and have to request that we take responsible actions to protect the lives of other people. You know, you have enough people who have radicalized, and you look at even the arrests that were made in Ottawa and the one yesterday in Peterborough, and the number of new supporters for the local activists, anti-vaxxer activists that uh, joined his Facebook group uh, yesterday and says, well, you know, there are more people piling on because they see this resistance as their strong stand for what their vision of freedom looks like despite the freedoms that we have. I mean, it'd be one thing if we're having a conversation about the elements of the Charter of Rights and Freedom, but those freedoms still exist. The government at no point quashed those freedoms. The Emergency Measures Act was carefully crafted to ensure that there were no limitations on those freedoms enjoyed by the majority of Canadians. But you're going to see a swelling of numbers, and you see it already on, on, on Facebook with the uh, local activists, and we won't mention his name. We're not going to give any any recognition to that kind of behavior. Uh, the anti-police backlash. You know, Peterborough police should have done better. They, sh- you know, this guy should have held his breath and told the police officer, "Just wait until you get what you want." And and the, and the liking of those comments. You know, we have to be concerned. God forbid it become normalized that this is the new look of how we disagree with policy. Well, maybe we should talk just for a minute. We've been talking about Ottawa and the national scene. What about in our hometown here, Peterborough? Uh, Did anyone see anything of the slow roll yesterday online? I know I watched the arrest uh, on Facebook. And again, I was impressed with the policing. I mean, it was patient, but eventually, you know, the fellow wouldn't open his car. So they broke a window, unlocked the car, took him out. And, you know, after a lot of negotiation, this was not, uh, to my eye anyway, I wasn't there, uh, did not look like uh, brutal policing, precisely the opposite. No, it's it's sort of twofold here. I think our, with... With huge respect, you know, I come from a family where there are, there are police officers in my family, and I have I have respect uh, for for the importance of policing in our society. I really do. I heard really concerning reports the the first weekend of slow roll protesting of people making numerous nine one one calls about dangerous behavior on behalf of some of these protesters or really mm-hmm. intimidating behavior, and the police refused to respond. Um, they just didn't come. And I don't know if that was disorganization. I don't know if they were overwhelmed. It certainly didn't look like it. There weren't, there was no sort of police guidepost for, for these things. So where were they? 
uh, and why didn't they come when, you know, there were numerous 911 calls. There's a really now viral video of the protester um, trying to hold the truck back. Yes. And numerous 911 calls were made around that situation and the police just didn't come. There were no police there. Uh -huh. um, and so why? Uh, I'm really concerned about that. And then why, when they did come, did they give, did they give the man holding up traffic a ticket? Like, what, right. come on. And so, Bill, I, I, I have, I, I agree with you in part that I think when the police were responding, that they did a proportional job. Um, I think the fact that they did do that towards folks who looked like me, I'm a white man. I think mm -hmm. if, if these protesters were by any other color, by any other race, you know, for, for any other reason, the response would have looked been a lot swifter and a lot more violent. I think that's really concerning. I, I think we have to continue to talk about what that means, that we're praising a police response that was to predominantly white, uh, predominantly male um, folks. And so we have to really be careful about how we measure measure sort of police proportional response. You know, and, and the other thing I want to say in terms of sort of locally and municipally and, and just, and also provincially is I'm concerned about what all of this means as we're going into an election year and it's a double election year. We've got a provincial election this year. We've got a municipal election this year and that ha that's happening all across um, Ontario. I'm really concerned about the sort of dog and we're, we're entering into a conservative party leadership race. The only, de the only de declared candidate is pardon my French, a complete psychopath. And so like, what are, sorry, but he really is like, he's a crazy person. And so what are we going to like, what, what is all of this going to do? Like, are we going to see more folks running for political office? We're going to cater to these people because they think it's politically convenient to do so. And then what is the state of our elected, you know, elected representatives all across our country going to be? Um, right. that, that's really like, oh, these are things that are, are, are uber concerning, um, to me. Um, as we talk about like local local response. Well, Dane, I mean, I have to quote uh, yourself. Uh, was it the last program or a few programs ago? You made the observation that you don't know anyone in your age cohort who is considering running for office. And I've been asked a couple of times about, you know, I, I sought the nomination for the provincial liberal party and a bunch of people have said, well, what about city council? I don't want to do it, Bill. I, I don't. I and I don't know anyone. I don't know any young people who want to do it. You know, the people who are going to do it are the people who have these like, and I'm really concerned, you know, there's where we're, we also have interesting election finance laws in Canada, um, municipal election finance, you know, reporting looks a little bit different than finance reporting in other places. So what does all of this mean in terms of what kind of folks with what kind of power are going to be right? You know, do any of yeah. these protesters get to go home from jail and run for city council and win like with dark money support? I don't know. But the fact that I don't know it, that's terrifying. It, it, you know, Dane, you know, this is why I like it when I get an opportunity to talk to this guy. You know, <laughs> always, always poignant and always on point. And, and you know, it, there is a concern because of the mobilization. Look at what you, know, you think of the American scenario with Trump and how we fed into that sentiment that actually existed in the U.S. And look at his vote count in the second term. Uh, to seek the presidency. You know, I don't doubt, like you, Dane, that there will be those politicians that come forward who run and try to pull that voting pool in to their camp. You've got the People's Party of Canada, uh, you had Maxim Bernier, and you had the expelled uh, member from provincial legislature, Randy Hillier, Randy Hillier, who were at the very start 
of this convoy in Ottawa out there chumping and ramping up the support. Yep. That sentiment exists. It exists here in Peterborough. And I wouldn't be surprised in the least bit if you see candidates that step out. And it is shameful that even with an impending municipal election that, uh, you know, the, the, the enthusiasm that existed in the last election doesn't exist in this one all. You know, I, the rumblings of old to say, well, you know, listen, we've reached a climate here where decision making is becoming so difficult that you're trying to appease individuals that just don't want to have rational conversations about the things they object to. So now they're feeding into this type of group and this type of mentality. It's like, we'll find uh, the, the passionate ears here. This is how gangs got started. Because when nobody felt like they belonged somewhere, they found homes within groups of people who would say, oh, okay, well, you're, you're, you're really out there in left field with your ideology, but come on, boy, we'll take you on. You know? So it, it is disconcerting that you might see that come into the next two elections. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, is it required for uh, candidates running for city council to go through a uh, criminal background check? No, it's not required. It's the, not. Only, uh, the, only, uh, the only requirement is that you've not been convicted of offense that breaches public trust. Now, the, the requirements are laid out provincially. So, right. it, you know, you can't have a municipality say we're going to pass a bylaw. Uh, that uh, precludes anybody who's not been convicted of an offense that speaks to a breach of public trust from running. So it does open it. So if you have uh, any of these hardcore radicals saying, listen, I've got enough support and I'm going to run and quite likely win, choose to run and bring that idea and ideology into government. You know, one of the big questions you might ask is what's the likelihood of the member from Lanark County getting reelected in the next provincial election. Yeah. It, it's very much so likely, although expelled, not running under any one particular party banner, the likelihood of that individual getting reelected is very high. Now, we are uh, winding down here. I am wondering, what do we make of the ver- the responses of the various governments, like Trudeau and his liberals? How do they do? Doug Ford and his conservatives? Did, did Jagmeet Singh sell out anyone or the heritage of Tommy Douglas by supporting the now revoked Emergency Act? What, what do we think about government responses? I'll step into the fray. It's Annie. I was, well, uh, Doug Ford didn't do anything. He just hid at the cottage. As far as I could see, he refused to give Stoy the support, I guess, that he needed to to end the occupation. Um, Michelle Ferreri was, hor- I was horrified to see her siding with them and, and just creating even more foment with that. I don't think, you know, if I give her the benefit of the doubt, I don't think she realized what she's stepping into or what she's aggravating. I think she's way out of her league in this. So, and I, I was, I'm really angry at the way that they kind of forced Trudeau's hand. I mean, I don't think the guy wanted to put the Emergencies Act in place. I think, you know, but they were just, they want, you know, everybody was kind of wanting him to do, you know, to do it. So they could say, oh, you're just like your dad, right? It was kind of unfair to put him in that position when there probably were some other options available before that. So, you know, I think he handled it very, very stably very calmly very the best 
the best he could do under the circumstances and at least got it more or less under control for the moment. Jane, go ahead. I think, I think all levels of government took far too long to respond. I think we waited mm. far too long for the city of Ottawa to declare a state of emergency. Um, I think when it became, when it began, uh, pardon me, sorry. I think when it, uh, so I think, I think we waited far too long for everyone to respond. I think it took the city of Ottawa too long to respond to declare a state of emergency. Um, I think the provincial and federal governments took too long to respond and declare states of emergency or to really implement some forms of leadership uh, on the issue um, in place when this became not just a localized concern, but these protests started cropping up all over the place. You know, I, I think the decision, look, the decision to, these are the, the same protests, look, let's just say this, these same protesters who wave thin blue line flags and say blue lives matter um, are decrying and disagreeing with police officers who are saying that the Emergency Measures Act was necessary for them to respond appropriately to this issue. And so, look, the police are saying the act was necessary. So these are people who claim Blue Lives Matter, I support the cops. If the cops are saying the, the, the act was necessary, then the act was necessary and maybe you should listen and you shouldn't be such a hypocrite. And, and I think, you know, but, but I think the response across the board was too slow. I think they, they, we let these people get entrenched. I think that was re that's, that's really, really concerning. Um, obviously, anyone with a social media account knows how I feel about MP Freire, so I won't linger there. But, <laughs> you know, it's it takes it, it just took too long. And I think the fact that there were, you know, 80 some odd legislators in um, in the federal government were lending these folks legitimacy and voting against, you know, doing the, what was best for the country. That's real concerning. Yeah, yeah, Bill, just before I jump off on this, I, I got the, I had two conversations going simultaneously here. So this is the, and I, I got the last part of what Dane said, uh, which was uh, correct. And what most people don't know is that the Emergency Measures Act was in, in use up to the official vote. And I, I was listening to Chantal Hebert yesterday on the CBC uh, talk about this. And the, the, the predicament that it actually put Trudeau himself in, the police were, were saying, yeah, we need this to do what we had to do because the police services acts limits them from doing it. So the only way they were able to do it was with the Emergency Measures Act. So the government then had to legitimize the vote around the act with which with the Monday vote. So, you know, it's. It, it's, it is an interesting time, and I think students of political science have got material that is going to be studied for quite a long time to come. Uh, the last two years, and, you know, I heard Steve Harvey make a comment uh, the other day, which I found really fascinating. He says, imagine this, this is the first time the entire world had to deal with the same crisis at the same time. Yes. What would make it that much more interesting for students of political science is how each respective government responded to it. Right. That becomes good material for study. Right. Thanks, Stephen. When we get down to the horse race, there will be, an, a, you know, we've talked about elections coming up this year. Of course, we're in a minority government situation, so uh, federally, so there will be a federal election before four years are out, probably. How did this event, the whole, well, the whole last four weeks, uh, the uh, anti, anti mandate uh, protests, the blockades, the Ottawa thing, how does this play out for the uh, 
uh, four major political parties, well, five major political parties, Greens, Bloc, NDP, Conservatives, and Liberals. Have the Liberals come up smelling like roses? Have the Conservatives suffered a hit? Or did they gain an advantage? What do we think? I think the Conservatives have certainly leaned into the PPC effect. Um, I think, yes. Like, I think that they're trying to stem the tide there, at least that, you know, O'Toole, and I'm not an O'Toole fan, but by and large, O'Toole mod- is a relative moderate compared to some of his caucus colleagues. And so his defeat in a quite decisive defeat and a confidence vote in his leadership, that's really concerning because it shows where that party's headed. So I think we need to be aware of that and of that factor. They are not going to support the government in a single confidence motion. And so the second that the NDP, really it's the NDP holding the balance of power at the moment. So the second the NDP vote against a confidence motion, when we're going to be, we're going to have a federal election. The second that that happens, because I don't envision the bloc supporting the government on very much. The conservatives aren't going to support them on anything. You know, the Greens only have the one uh, seat. And so it's the NDP really who are making the decisions here. It's just a lot of power and a lot of responsibility. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I think the NDP, like liberals with the NDP holding the balance of power is actually a decent way for us to do governance. But I think the Conservative Party, at least federally, has really leaned into that. You know, I'm curious to see what's going to happen uh, provincially when election platforms start. Like, which Doug Ford are we going to get? Yeah, because there's there's 12 of them, right? So which one are we going to get in the election right. campaign? It's going to be really interesting. Right. Um, and then again, municipally, I mean, there's we don't know who the players are in, in the municipal election coming up in Peterborough fully. And so I think that that's you know, there's there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of interest, and I agree wholeheartedly, Bill, with you that that you know we're going to have a federal government. Uh, I joked at, at at my work that we're going to start an office pool um, as to how quickly the government will be defeated because it's not going to take very long. Can we um, hazard a guess as to who comes out of this the strongest? Was this a liberal win, a conservative loss? Did the NDP win or lose by throwing support in with Trudeau? I don't think that the NDP has lost anything by supporting Trudeau because I think that even pretty, you know, far, you know, I I consider myself a leftist also felt like at some point you have to do something about this and it doesn't matter what the NDP does. They'll never look good to anyone on the right. So I don't think the NDP came out looking bad. Trudeau invoking the emergency is exactly what they wanted him to do. You know, because then they can say like, oh, he's a dictator. He's a terrible person. Now, my dad recently wrote me an email. And in this email, he said, sorry, bear with me because this is very fun. I see Castro's son has stopped the Emergency Powers Act. Suddenly, they have seen the banks were losing funds like Niagara Falls. Those funds were going to crypto and precious metals. Trudeau will have a hard time getting reelected unless they cheat him in. Which is just gives you oh. an impression of like the... The mentality around all this, right? doesn't matter what yeah, he's yeah. done. doesn't matter that he invoked it and then repealed it as soon as it was no longer necessary. There's no right answer, you know? So any move the liberals made would have been a blow to them. And I think in the end, the conservatives seem stupid. But the problem is that these this small group of people are so loud and so determined that other people who are just kind of moderately right or moderately liberal might be like, oh, hey, maybe there's something to that. Um, yes. So th- yes. that would be my concern. All right. So we're, we're winding uh, down here. Last words. Any aspect of this whole situation. What will we be talking about six months, a year from now, about uh, the last four, four or five weeks in Canada? What will 
what will be the net net, as it were? Bill, the news cycle is 24 hours. We're not going to be talking about this in six months. Like, there's going to be nothing. Okay. There's going to be something way worse coming. Also, is it the, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the you're an optimist. Really, the truckers really picked a great week to present themselves as victims, you know? Takeaways. I think, I think if, if, I think unless there's sort of a serious, I think, I think, I really think they need to do a serious review of the police, policing all across the country and, you know, find out how deeply embedded the, the, um, white supremacy movement is in those, uh, areas as well as the military. I think if that doesn't happen, I, I have to say, I think it's going to be very grim. I, I think that it doesn't really matter who went, who looks good coming out of this event, because I think the social media is almost the driver of who's going to win. I, I think there also has to be some sort of crackdown on social media misinformation. That's not probably going to happen, but it's, that's a, a really powerful thing. And I think also there's a, there's just generally a crisis of leadership. You know, as we talked about the lack of women don't want to run on any level because of the incredible vile hatred and people of color won't want to run. It it really limits the number of people who uh, will step up to that plate. So unless there's, again, some kind of affirmative action towards eliminating that kind of hate speech and making making uh, penalties for that kind of vitriol coming through then I, I i just i'm afraid i feel very pessimistic about the future for this um i hate to think of you know i mean i find myself thinking about um you know the you know the holocaust and so you know are there people that as a white person am i going to have to hide somebody in my basement if we get a conservative right wing thing if trump gets in is that is he going <laughs> to move into take over Canada, you know, if he feels like it, he could do that if he wanted to, I guess, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be Ukraine, you know, I really don't, but I feel that those are, there's some really, really powerful dark forces at work and it makes me extremely fearful unless we, unless we put some stopgap measures in there very, very quickly. Uh Maybe my yes, closing, maybe my closing words are in response to your the question that you asked previously, which is who wins. And I think a better question is uh, like, or a better response to that would be, well, we've all kind of lost actually a little yes. bit. We kind of all have, and even the folks who are way on the radical right, you know, they've lost because they're kind of losing credibility, especially in the face of current events. Any moderate Canadian, any left-leaning or progressive Canadian have lost because we're seeing this increasing divisiveness. Um, we're living in, I like to say that we're living in a post-truth society, that we just get, you know, we just by virtue of the fact that we want to clickbait and we don't want to be accused of fake news or anything, that we're trying to both sides things that are objective facts. You know, it's so, vaccines work. That's a scientific fact. There's actually no both sides in that issue. I'm sorry. Like, there isn't. Elections yep. aren't rigged, like, you know, in, in Canada or in the United States. You don't actually get to both sides that fact. There's no alternative opinion on those things. And so True. when we give light to these, like, the more these people get legitimacy in our society, the more that we get to both sides the truth, the farther down this, this sort of post-truth line we go, 
to this mm-hmm. like really kind of gray, mushy place where everything's a little crappy. And we we are all worse off. We are actually all worse off. So I don't like. It's kind of funny. I say this as a person who saw it and not like. I don't care what party won. Um, I don't care how Trudeau came out looking. Um, I don't care if this is going to make it easier or, or harder for Ford to win re-election. I, I care that we're all in a in a bit of a crummy place at the moment, um, and I and I and I, I care that no one has a solution. And so I think we're all losing something here. Well, and on that cheerful note, uh, can. Can't dispute that, Dane. Thank you so much. So, Jill, Stephen, Annie, and Dane, thank you so much for joining me uh, for this panel discussion. You've been listening to episode 113 of the Pints and Politics podcast. We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast. We're also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So until next time, this is Bill Templeman. 